it all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Nicole Sparshot. Nikki was appointed CEO of T2T in 2016, a growing luxury retailer of top-of-the-line tea brands. She's accountable for delivering the bottom line of T2 and for driving its global expansion for omnichannel acceleration and for digital and tech-enabled transformation. She's a C-suite executive and board member with 24 years of experience in CPGs, having worked for Coke, Procter & Gamble, and most recently Unilever. Nicole Sparshot, welcome into the corner office. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you here. We're literally on opposite sides of the world, and I'm so excited. You're one of the very first uh, international CEOs we've had and the very first which we've actually recorded outside of the U.S. In fact, I am antipolar to you right now. I'm in Connecticut, uh, and our office is here. And uh, you're in Singapore, from what I gather, correct? Well, I am. I'm in Singapore this morning. And uh, I think a <laughs> tr- true manifestation of uh, the global world that we're living in. So Absolutely, it's lovely to be here. yeah. It's terrific. Well, it's great to have you here. And I'm so, so excited to hear your story. We've got some commonality with regards to our CPG past. And uh, I know that you've taken on the the uh, CEO position for uh, T2T. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I want to start, start, you know, with some of the early days and, and learn a little bit about your childhood. Um, I know you didn't grow up in Singapore, but uh, like uh, I, which adopted it as a home for about 10 years, you've been there for a few. But tell us about the early days. I believe Australia Australia is originally your home, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and uh, beautiful city. It's a gorgeous city. Yes, a very, very nice uh, place to spend your childhood. And and I have to say, I had a, a, a I was blessed with a really, yeah. really lovely um, childhood. You know, mum, dad, and and two two gorgeous siblings. I have a awesome. a younger sister and a younger brother as well. So you were the oldest. I was the oldest, yeah. yes, with all of mom the and dad professionals. Yeah, mom and dad professionals, blue collar, college educated. What was their background? Yeah, so um, no, both both highly educated, but uh-huh. I, my dad and and my mum both came to Australia when they were quite young. Um, oh, okay, and they were built. Mm-hmm. Are, they are yes, yeah. and they are uh, built uh, a life for themselves um, in Sydney, and yeah. and, and quite uh, you know 
quite spectacularly, I have to say, you know, really navigated being in, in a new country with their own families and, and assimilating yeah. and, and creating um, their own worlds. But, yes, Where did absolutely. they immigrate from? Um, both my parents actually were born in different parts of um, uh-huh. Egypt. Um, my oh, wow. mum really came cool. when she was very young. Um, she was only about two years old when she came to Australia. And my dad yeah, was yeah. a little older. But my background is predominantly uh, Italian. Okay, got it. And did they both speak English when they came? Or was that, again, a, a non-native language they had to learn as part of an immigrant? No, they both, um, they both came from families that, that, that spoke English as well, but yeah. many other languages. So, you know, I grew up with grandparents that spoke English, French, Arabic, wow. Greek, Italian. That's so cool. a very multicultural Multilingual, multicultural background. Absolutely. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And did many of them immigrate then to Australia where, where your parents joined by other family members? And is it kind of a, a clan sort of a arrangement there with uh, many folks coming multi-generationally? Um, look, there were a few, but they also had relatives yeah. in Australia um, as Got well. It. So, yeah. 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 What were some of the early kind of influences, inspirations that you got from mom and dad? A lot, actually. And I think I've, I've <laughs> often thought back and perhaps now having my own children, you, you know, you get a bit more nostalgic about these things. But um, sure. incredibly strong sense of, you know, core values. Um, you know, mm. I grew up where family was was really you know, important, and and we had the privilege of having a, a quite large extended family with, you know, grandparents played a really really big role in our lives, and oh, and that so nice. sense of um, community and connection and um, relationships was always very front and center of of yeah. how we spent our time and how we lived our lives. So that that had a really strong influence on me, and a really strong work ethic. You know, this sort of notion mm. of impossible is nothing, but you. You, you've got to work for it. You've got to put in right. pretty hard effort and some grit. But, you know, when you do, the rewards can also be there, I think, was was very much part of, of the ethos of, you know, growing yeah. did, up. Did they, did they both achieve their um, college education in Australia and, and work in the professional trade? But what, what type of uh, work or businesses did, what did they work in? Yeah, so my, my dad um, is a teacher. A, a, a transport uh, consultant and advisor. So mm-hmm. he advises on town planning and, um, you know, building cities and roads and, wow. uh, you know, how to construct the right infrastructure for for cities. So, you know, he ended up with sort of master's education and was very successful, ended up having, uh, working both corporations, but also having a very successful own business. Um, and then, you know, to, to this day is still very active um, on the work front. Um, he was, you know, engineering, a, engineering background engineer, or architecture, yeah. engineering, engineering, yeah. engineering background, yeah. um, and very much sort of participated in in many things adjacent to that, but also outside it. You know, mm. president of Rotary, president of the local nice. council. Um, so I always felt that my dad um, worked hard to achieve what he wanted to achieve for himself, and and most importantly, I think for his family, that was always very much yeah. there. Yeah. But also felt this obligation, and actually took great delight in also being part of the the fabric of the community and using his skill set mm. in that capacity. My mum actually um, 
a super smart lady and at a point in time um, when she had young kids decided to to stop working and mm. and look after us so yeah. you know when we when we get home from school mum was always there and and the one that was nice. helping us with our homework and you know getting yeah. on with things and she actually went back to um, her career a bit later on in life and and only okay. very very recently retired but she was uh, working in the banking sector um, oh, for okay. for most of cool. her career yeah Got it. Well, it sounds like there was a lot of inspiration, a lot of influence from family members and extended family members. What, what about outside of that? Were there any particular teachers or coaches that inspired you, particularly in your earlier years, you know, elementary or middle school years? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I can think of probably two teachers, probably more, mm-hmm. but two in particular that sort of really come front and center for me. Um, one was in about it was in primary school, so what would I probably about grade four and maybe nine uh-huh. years of age, and I remember really struggling with a particular subject, sort of comprehension, right? It was around, um, you know, English literature and and comprehension. Now, a, I didn't really like it that much, and B, I didn't really do that well in it. And Mrs. Right. Robertson, I remember her name. She I kicked off her name. An, That's great. I do. I remember <laughs> her name. And she kicked off this particular initiative one week and announced to the class that, you know, we're going to do a comprehension test every week. And she would award um, a Mars bar. I don't know if you have Mars bar. Ah. I think they're in the US. A Mars bar to Love the person it. that achieved the highest results. And I thought, you know, I was growing up in a house at the time where both my siblings were um, had some pretty severe food allergies. So, yeah, I can tell you mm. now, chocolate was not an option in our home. Not, not uh, available, right, right? Not available, not an option. And I thought, right, <laughs> Out of stock. this is this is the motivation that I need. And, wow, uh, and I think cool. I went through a series of, you know, the rest of the year almost getting awarded that Mars bar each and every week. But, you know, the little lesson I learned I from it. that was that, you know, the power of incentive and motivation, you got to find yeah. what turned you on and, and how you get yeah. motivated by it. But um, another one was in high school and, and probably, mm-hmm. you know, middle high school years. And she was this amazing teacher who, perhaps was only four or five years older than us at the time, mm. a little hippie-like, but she had this sort of insatiable <laughs> curiosity, this passion for learning and teaching and this real belief, probably a little bit unusually at the time, that you you learn through doing rather than through, yeah. you know, just um, being, listening, so participating. And so she amazingly sparked my interest in uh, mm. in really pushing the boundaries of how you learn and, and experiential learning, and, and and that has stuck with me even to today. How I raise my children, how I build my teams, yeah. how I how I fulfill my own lifelong learning. So yes, absolutely. It's amazing how we we've had people that have touched us, you know, as we've gone through those very influential periods, you know, whether in school or younger. And, you know, then just it kind of reminds me of the responsibility we have for others too, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I do believe what you put out there, you you know, you, you get back or you reap what you sow, yeah. whatever you, you know, whatever yep. phrase you want yep. to use. But that that absolutely is, a, um, is a, a kind of principle by which I think most people should live their lives. Were you a good student? I was definitely committed. I actually really mm-hmm. loved school. I probably was one of those yeah. kind of girly slots that, you know, really did kind of get <laughs> up in the morning and, and look forward to school and, and probably yeah. for two reasons. You know, I'm curious by nature, but I'm also quite social by nature. So oh. those two things came together pretty nicely in a school environment. Um, I was up for it all, if you know what I mean. I was, you know, quite yeah. happy to give everything a go. And, and yeah, I would say I, I loved school and I, 
and I did pretty well at it, yeah. What about outside of class? Were there other interests, music, sports, drama? Yeah, actually, I was into a, a, a quite a variety of things. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I grew up playing netball, uh, which I loved. Oh. And actually, now, I, you have to explain netball because we've got a lot of Americans there. I, I happen yeah, to know what it okay. is having in Australia. Okay. But. So netball, I guess the closest <laughs> thing would be basketball, but right. without the ability to run with the ball or bounce yep. the ball. But at the end of the day, you've got to shoot hoops. So, you know, some yeah. rules in between that are a bit different, but the goal is to, you know, shoot as many hoops as possible. Um, yeah. So it's a really, really fun game and a very sort of archetypal Australian game. My 13-year-old mm-hmm. daughter plays mm-hmm. it now and I'm, I find myself living a little vicariously through her again <laughs> as I, you know, watch her and have to resist the urge to jump onto the court. Um uh, I was actually in Kenya recently for a business trip and, and we wow. were in one of the local schools and they uh, asked us in a quite makeshift way if we would assemble a few of us to give a bit of a game against oh. the local uh, Kenyan 14-year-old girls team and I, I can tell you we were annihilated. But, you know, it was fun to, <laughs> fun to be back uh, playing. So net, netball was big. Um, I really loved drama. You know, there was yeah. a time in my life where I actually thought, right, I want to be an actress mm. when I grow up. So yeah. I did lots of um, lots of drama, lots of debating, Toastmasters, mock trial, you know, anything that yeah. kind of got you, uh, you know, thinking and and out there, let's say, um, was something. And I that bet that really prepared you for a lot of your corporate work, right? Presentations to boards and investors, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, probably quite un- unwittingly, but definitely um, an advantage to to have now for sure. That's great. What about entrepreneurial activities, you know, in the U.S., which is kind of unique, you know, kids grow up with, you know, paper routes or they sell things door to door. I know in other countries, maybe it's not so much that the case, but uh, were were there any entrepreneurial things in your youth that um, stuck out when you think about, you know, making some pocket money or perhaps what you might have done to, (laughs) you know, generate some extra income when you were growing up? Yeah, definitely. You know, I um. From a quite young age, actually, I, I I loved setting up my little cake stalls. You know, I'd spend sort uh, of your, your Friday afternoon was or that Saturday at school morning or at the street or where, where would you do that? Yeah, I would do it up at the local shopping centre. So okay. you know, maybe okay. maybe a couple of times a year, but I would bake like crazy. You know, I had my kids' cooking That's book, great. and my mum would kind of yeah. watch over me as I baked up a you know, flurry of different things that I'd then go and put on a trestle table with a little handmade sign and and sell up the shop. So, you know, <laughs> you, we were great. living in quite a lovely community where people yeah. sort of knew, knew Nikki was, you know, off doing a cake right. store again. So, yeah, so I definitely did that. Um, I used to paint, you know, paint and sell T-shirts, especially mm. as I got a little bit oh. older. And and then, um, yeah, I was always looking for interesting little things to do and, and as you say, a little bit of extra pocket money to just put aside. But, um. What'd you spend um, it on? I, I was actually pretty good at saving. I kind of, you <laughs> Is know, that right? I, you, you, yeah. You I mean, then, the then, then there were things that put in the piggy bank, a little bit of a, a piggy yeah. bank um, collector, which I then subsequently used, you know, to, you know, when I was a, probably in my early twenties to um to travel. You know, that, that yeah. was my thing. Yeah. I really just wanted you to explore the it world. away for that travel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A very Australian thing, I must admit. They probably, I think more Australians go abroad in their late teens and early 20s than probably any other nationality. At, l- at least it seemed that way when I was traveling at that age. I had run yeah. into Australians everywhere. I, I think you're quite right. I, I think you're quite yeah. right. I think there's this real, and you know, people say Australia is so far away from the rest of the world, but I think in many ways Australians, um, 
it's such a multicultural society to start right. with. So the influence right. is 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 there already. But I think yeah. that um that desire to travel is is yeah, I was probably part of the Australians like he actually. Yeah. So before college, were there jobs that you had, you know, um, work part-time in retail or anything like that? Or was it more the entrepreneurial things, again, for pocket money, even through those high school years? No, I definitely went and got got myself a, a more traditional, regular paying mm-hmm. job. Yeah, I started in retail, actually. I um, was a checkout girl at one of the local grocery stores. That was the first got time it. I probably got a yeah. Paycheck from you know someone else for right, turning up and right. and doing my yeah. job. Um, it's kind of exciting, isn't it? I remember the first paycheck I got. I was like, "Wow, this is pretty oh, cool." It's even got my name on it. <laughs> absolutely, and and it came yeah. at that point in time. It came in you know little brown envelope, and you know right. there wasn't anything electronic. So it was you know there was yep, something a little yep. bit exciting about yeah, it. Yeah, it was a real check. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was yeah. a real oh, check. I worked in a video store for a while. I mean, we don't have yeah. video stores now, which is that's kind, right. that's <laughs> kind right. of yep. shocking yep. to me. But that was great because <laughs> I was able to, uh, you know, do some evening shifts and, uh, you know, do my uni homework at the same time. So that, yeah. that was pretty good. And I did a was little it, bit of telemarketing. It, yeah, cool. Was, was it assumed by mom and dad that, that uh, you and your sisters would all go to college? Yeah, I think so. You know, mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. I think that we were, when assumed, certainly a, um, a strong Expected. desire. Yeah. Desire, yeah. you know, yeah. I think had yeah. we said we've got this huge passion that takes us somewhere other than college, they probably would have, you know, mm, reluctantly supported, supported us. Yeah. But yeah. I think at that point <laughs> in time, they felt quite passionate about education. You know, if you, if you yeah. have the opportunity to take up, extra education really refine what it is you want to do and and craft um your thinking on on your skill set and how you want to use that in life then yes they were very pro taking that up and it sounded like studies came easy to you i mean you worked hard at it but that you excelled and you enjoyed it yeah look i think so there were things i I was much better at than others you know i'm Mm -hmm, so grateful mm -hmm. to not have to do statistics ever again but you know there were but yes I kind it was of, chemistry for me <laughs> right right the so there's sciences always, were not my friend there's always something right that you sort of think oh right. gosh you know it might be a necessary evil to get through you know this course but um yeah generally speaking as you say it was something I enjoyed and therefore it came yeah. it comes more easily when you naturally like it now, there are quite a few number of colleges and universities in Australia. How, how did you make the decision on on where to go and what to study? Yeah, look, I um, initially thought that I might go and do um, law, actually. I've always mm-hmm, had an mm-hmm. interest in, in criminology, actually, from a very young age. And, and it's really around the psychology of criminology, Um and that when you did debate as well, right? Which is always debating a, a and mock trial. Yeah. So mock yeah, trial. that yeah, right. exactly. So, yeah, so um, I did for a long t- for, well for a long time for the for the last sort of couple of years of school. Think that that might be where I ended up, but um, right. I made a decision reasonably late in the day, actually, that doing a business degree might give me a few mm. more options because I could always do a law major as part of that if I decided that that's where my energy took me. So I ended up doing a business degree. And at the time, the University of Technology in Sydney just had um, the strongest business degree. Other fantastic universities in Australia, but they are they tend to specialise in in other things. And I really wanted to get that 
that practical experience and this particular degree have the opportunity to do um, work overseas for real companies as part of the degree and, you know, going back to that desire to be quite experiential in the way I learned, that really appealed to me. Right. And it's is it a, like in Europe? Is it a three year bachelor's degree, or two year? What, what yeah, was your three. Three. yeah, three. Yeah, it was yeah. a three right, years. Yeah. Right. And and did you spend a year abroad then, or did you uh, work overseas during the time that you were studying, or study overseas during that time? Yeah, so I actually uh, took up path less trodden let's call it so I when I took up my business degree so it was a three-year degree I actually did Mm -hmm. the first year of that full time and then had an opportunity to go and uh, I applied for a scholarship with uh, Hewlett-Packard actually they were offering a 12-month scholarship to go and work with them full time Um, so then and and by a bit of good luck and a, a bit of good planning, I, I did get that scholarship. So it was my first oh, sort of full-time job. Thank you. Mm. And I worked the rest of my degree part-time uh, while okay. I worked for Hewlett-Packard. And then over the course of the remaining sort of remaining two and two and a half years that it, it took me to finish it on a part-time basis, I mm. uh, spent some time in China doing oh, some work fantastic. in China. With HP or, or separate to that? Separate to that, actually, working separate. for a, uh, yeah, a mining company who was looking to to get into the China market. So I did some bespoke awesome. work for them and also in um, South Africa and Brazil for um, another company that was looking to uh, extend its, its practices into those regions. So it was across the board, Hewlett-Packard plus those two opportunities really um, enriched, I guess, the insight that I had around international business in particular, which is um, then when I went on to do my master's, I actually specialised in international business, having really found quite some passion in that space. And did you do the master's uh, immediately following it or was there some work in between? Yeah, a little bit of work in between. So I went and took up my, you know, a job first and and worked for a while, but then really realised that this was a this could be a space that gets me up in the morning, let's say. So when what, what was that first job you took out of college after your bachelor's degree? Yeah, so after Hewlett-Packard, I went and took up a job with Procter & Gamble, actually. Oh, right, um, my old employer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember yeah, that. Uh, it, really, yeah. yes, there yeah, you go. Yeah. So um, I went and worked for, for Procter & Gamble in Australia, and right. um, P&G at the time had an amazing yeah. portfolio of brands, and I quite fancied the opportunity to maybe work on cosmetics or skincare or one of these very glamorous portfolios. But I turned up on my first day and and at the time PNG had a policy where when they offered you a job as, you know, a brand manager or whatever, they didn't actually tell you what portfolio you would be working on until the day you joined. Yeah. And uh, so I turned up very expectantly hoping to, you know, be on one of these quite glamorous accounts and uh, ended up. <laughs> and they put you being, on soap. <laughs> they put me on, I think possibly even worse, they put me on uh, a brand called Metamucil, which is a bulk fiber Oh, Metamucil. Fiber oh, laxative. right. The fiber. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, my yeah, goodness. Absolutely. Highly profitable, but yeah, not a particularly glamorous brand. <laughs> not a particularly glamorous brand for a while there. How long, I, is, how long did you stay at PG? I stayed at P&G for a couple of years. So I worked yeah. across Metamucil and then Clearasil, which is a skincare oh, yeah. sure. brand, oh. uh, sort of came part of my portfolio. For a while there, I was known as the brand manager of of shits and zits, which was not very <laughs> attractive. <laughs> but the most, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the most um, grounding uh, grounding time uh, in my early career and a fantastic foundation, actually, to, yeah. to learn the okay. basics of business and marketing. 
And did you go back to your master's from Proctor then or work elsewhere? Yeah, you did so? correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did my, yeah. I'd actually started my master's in my, um, in my last year of, of Procter & Gamble. So I worked right. full-time and then just did my master's part-time and, uh, and, and left PNG at a, a certain point there to take up. Yeah. What was my that locally role. in Sydney as well or where did you achieve your master's? Yeah. And I did that in Sydney as well. Yeah. Got it. Cool. So, so graduated and then back out into the workforce. What, what was that first job? Did you get recruited out of the master's program? Did you kind of travel for a bit? What, what was that next big, uh, you know, career launching activity? Mm, I actually went to Unilever. Uh, oh, so right. I, okay. yeah, Proctor's I went to Unilever. number one competitor. <laughs> I did. I did. And, um, and, and really, uh, for very specific reasons, cause PNG was, a wasn't and and largely is even today a business that's quite globally um uh, globally centric let's say so right. markets right. a lot of the the strategy and the thinking was done uh, i guess in the us and the deployment right. and execution was done in the market so a a great opportunity to hone execution skills and and to be honest mm-hmm. i think actually that last mile execution is the definer in many ways between good and right. great but I wanted to work on strategy development um, from the get-go. And so I went and worked in Unilever on a, an archetype portfolio in Australia oh, where all of the right. strategy generation and all of the um, communication work, everything was being done on the ground in Australia. So mm. I just felt that that was a really good next move to just yeah. you know, add to my toolkit, let's say. And you pretty much have been with them Ever since, right? Because as I understand, uh, your current responsibility is, is it a Unilever subsidiary, wholly owned or, or partially owned? So T2 is a, um, a wholly owned subsidiary now right. of Unilever, yeah. but I actually had a hiatus. So I, I spent, Oh, you left at one point. Okay. I did. I did. Yeah. I did. I, I did. And I came back. So I, I spent three yeah. years at Unilever and then actually went to the Coca-Cola company. Ah, oh. right. Cool. So and, I spent, and how long uh, were you with them? I was with the Coke company for about seven years, working firstly oh in Australia. Yeah, yeah over the yeah. Uh, Olympic, the 2000 Olympics ah, in Sydney, actually. Fun. And also we're working yeah. with Coke uh, at the time uh, that that took place. And then I actually relocated with the Coke company to London and went and worked there in, uh, in a number of different roles. That was my first time that I, let, let's say, left home and went and actually based myself overseas and had the chance now to work across a number of different right. markets um, in the UK. Awesome. Uh, brilliant, yeah. brilliant, brilliant. Still single at the time. time or were you, had you started your family by then? No, I was still, uh, yes, an Australian let loose in London, let's say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've met a few it, of those over the years. Yeah. And that's not to be discussed further. <laughs> no, absolutely not. But it was it was super fun, you know. So I, I yeah. you know, some of the the closest friends that Fantastic. I have today, I actually made, you know, during that time in in mm-hmm. London, and also had the wonderful good fortune of meeting my now husband uh, ah, during that time fantastic. as well. Yeah. Is he English? He's Scottish. He's Scottish. Okay, yes, don't make that mistake again, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's brilliant. Well, very, thinking very about those, Yeah, thinking about those early years, you know, the couple of years at Procter and two, three years at Unilever and then Coke, what, what were some of the early leadership lessons you learned in that part of your career? Because you were kind of in your 20s and 30s, right, for the most part, yeah. and uh, I'm sure kind of rising <clears> the ranks, so to speak. But if you recall back to that period of time, I know it wasn't that long ago, but uh, think about the types of things <laughs> that, you know, you kind of took away from that period. Well, I think the first one is 
to lead with integrity and a mm. real respect for everybody that you come across irrespective mm. of hierarchy. And I learned that in part because of some great leaders that did that exceptionally well, oh, but also great. in part because of some leaders that did that incredibly poorly. poorly. You know, and you learn <laughs> you learn from both, don't you? Absolutely, but, um, Nikki. That was Absolutely. probably that was probably the first and foremost. And then the second yeah. one I learned, and I hold true to this day, is that you know, generous leaders breed generous teams. Yeah. You know, take yeah. that time to share, take that time to learn, take that time to teach. Um, right. You know, and I had one amazing boss actually at, at Coke that did that exceptionally mm. well. Um, and the way she did it was really very empowering and something that even to, to this day I think was a, a, a really good indication of somebody that was time poor but realised that setting aside the time mm. to teach someone how to do something well once was going to save her so much time and add so much value down the track. So, yeah, that would be the two what a, for what a great early role essence. Model. Yeah, yeah What a great role model she was. So you worked with her at Coke? Yeah, I worked with her at Coke. Yeah, yeah I worked with her at Coke. Yeah. And I just remember the the moment that I, I had, you know, she did many things well um, and she could also be right. terrifying in many instances, but she'd asked <laughs> Most me. Most good bosses are. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> she'd asked me to work on something which I'd never worked on before. It was, it was a very new thing and I can't even remember what it was, but let's call it a, a, a type of strategic document that was probably right. my first time I'd been asked to do it. And, you know, I gave her draft one and she looked at it and said, no, pretty much not good enough, go away, do it again. You know, draft two, draft three. By, by the time I was walking into her office to hand in draft four, I thought, well, I might actually not have a job at the end of this meeting, but look, here we go. And <laughs> right, I may sat, not want to have the job after I'm not one or the <laughs> other. This is probably not going to go so well. Either and, way, right. Exactly, and I handed it to her and she just looked at me and she said, I can see you're trying, but I can see you're struggling. And I said, honestly, I, I've not been asked to do this before. I think I have some idea. Clearly, I'm not delivering what you need me to do. I, mm. I'm at a bit of a loss. And she got up very calmly, walked out to her PA and said, Belinda, clear the rest of my day so that I've got oh. some time for Nikki. And I remember Belinda saying, Kate, the day's it's jam-packed. We, there is so much on today. This is not the day to do it. And she said, there is nothing more important for me mm. than what I'm about to do now. Please clear my meetings and we can reschedule them. And then she came in, she shut the door, she <sighs> got her whiteboard out and she said, you know what, Nikki, I should have done this, you know, a week ago when I asked you to do it. I'm going to show you how I would approach it because then I will show you once. It will give you a framework and mm. next time you'll be able to do it for yourself but also for others. And we spent mm. the next few hours doing oh. it together. And it was just Fabulous. amazing, right? You don't get yeah. that often. Oh, my gosh. That is so cool. That is so mm. cool. What a great modeling behavior. Great. Wow. Well, do you remember the first time you started managing people, Nikki? When was that? Yeah, I do. I do, actually. Actually, it was in that Unilever role, that first um, was it? Unilever yeah. role that I took sort of in the 90s or whatever. And I, and I remember being in equal measure really excited because people management was something that I'd always wanted to have the opportunity to do and right, then right. equally terrified because for the first time you are responsible for people other than 
yourself um, in right. quite a, a yeah. quite a profound way. Uh, right. But but really also discovered that it was an area that I really liked and that came quite naturally to me. So the mm. the notion of working with teams, irrespective of sort of the role that you play in that team, but all of a sudden you're part of a, a gang or a tribe who are working together to collectively deliver an ambition was right. was I found quite quite exhilarating. And and actually even to today it's it's where I, I get a lot of my own energy is trying awesome. to, to harness the potential of a group. Yeah. Great. So fast forward, uh, came back to Unilever, where you've been now for how many years? Um, so when I came back to Unilever after Coke, um, coming on to 14 years now. 14 that years, I've been yeah, wow. Back at Unilever, yep. So, so fast forward, if, if you took a look now at, you know, the Nikki of today versus the Nikki when she was first at Unilever and Procter and some of those early years at, at Coke, how would you say your leadership style is, has changed over time? Or evolved. Yeah, I I would say. You know, it, it's funny thing because now twenty four years of of experience, and you realise that that same experience that has become your strength mm. can equally become your biggest blind spot. So I would mm. say my leadership style has evolved in two ways. The first one is I bring much more of a beginner's mindset into how I lead. And by that I mean mm. rather than thinking that the previous experience I had is going to now be my compass for how I make decisions moving forward, I keep a very open mind. So I try to seek mm. to learn, you know, listen twice as much as I speak, I guess, in that regard. Yeah. Um, and mm. the second one, I guess, is around really actively seeking out different perspectives, which mm. um, at times means that you can lead to, you can, you know, you can uncover a very inconvenient truth, which can really scupper mm. your hypotheses and your assumptions and the work right. that you've done to date. But, you know, really feeling that you, you need to really seek to understand to make sure you're looking holistically at whatever opportunity or challenge you have. And the last one for me is about, you know, being just more comfortable in my skin, I guess, just mm. not feeling that I yeah. need to fit into some sort of stereotype of what a, you know, leader <laughs> needs to right. look like or right. sound like right. or, or be like, but just knowing that. Don't need to be the I'm, smartest person in the room. Don't need to, you know. Absolutely right. not. You yeah. know, in yeah. fact, you know, go and surround yourself with people that are, are, are 10 times smarter, but then unleash, you know, <laughs> right. unleash their capability the best of, right. you know, right. and that, that, that just that notion when I, I know when I can bring my best self to work, I also then allow others to do the same. Yeah. So they're, they're probably yeah. the three things I would have said have changed That's the awesome. mind. Now, this is your first CEO role, I believe, correct? Yeah, it is. And, and so when you transitioned, was this an acquisition of Unilever? Tell us a little bit about how, this uh, corner office opportunity came to you or you came to it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I was working on the acquisition of T2 for okay. Unilever as, as part of a, a former role that I had at Unilever um, working. Were you in a strategy role then at that time? or were you? No, I actually was leading a, um, a, 
a portfolio for the Unilever business okay. across the Asian region. Right. Um, so in a, in a very commercial role, right. um, working across multiple markets. But part of that role was also to identify really interesting M&A opportunities that could mm. help to um, enhance, I guess, the portfolio that, that we had right. uh, for the category. And, and T2 was a business amongst others that we had, had been looking at. And so I, I led that acquisition for Unilever and when we acquired the brand that the, the, the original founders were, were part of the, the leadership team and, and led the business for a couple of years after acquisition and then okay. I took over uh, as the CEO at a point in time when we really wanted to scale internationally. Mm. So now this is yeah. about really driving a quite expansive agenda for T2 across markets, across mm. channels, and with a build in infrastructure and capability to allow us to do that well. And given my background, yeah. um, you know, I guess I was in a I was well placed to be able to to do that. Right. And that was about three years ago, I think, right? Is that when you were appointed CEO? Yeah, nearly four years ago now. Yeah. Nearly four years. Yeah. And how has the growth been since then? Is it uh, hit your expectations as well as uh, Unilever's? Yeah. Yeah. We've been really, you know, this is a beautiful, beautiful business and a yeah. fantastic brand. And it uh, taps into a number of really salient sweet spots, I guess, right now, you know, people's desire for more wellness-based offerings for mm -hmm. brands mm -hmm. that have purpose for, um, you know, a, a done differently approach to a category like tea that you could argue has been commoditized, but now is right. really, really coming into its own, you know, most consumed beverage in the world after water and certainly That's one right. of the fastest growing. So we've been really really pleased with what we've been able to deliver over that um, over that time period. That's cool. Um, tell me a little bit about kind of how the um, evolution of the culture has come around. You know, so often, unfortunately, big companies buy very innovative, you know, organically grown entrepreneurial companies. And then three years later, they lose all the consumers because they try to really, you know, corporatize, right, the organization. It doesn't sound like that's happened because four years is certainly a long enough time to be able to determine that. So, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about how you you did it. You know, what are your thoughts on kind of building on a company culture, not so much building a company culture, unless there had to be some changes, on what was already a pretty successful, probably a fairly entrepreneurial organization from, you know, one of the largest CPG companies in the world, if not the largest these days. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think you're quite right in that there was a culture that existed that gave us a beautiful platform on which to build. Mm. You know, it was really about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. There is something right. incredibly um, special about the T2 culture. And, and for me, it was about really understanding and appreciating what are the core values that have mm. driven this business to this point. And are those core values still relevant to create a future fit business moving mm. forward? And the answer to that was, yes, the manifestation mm. of it might need to evolve, but our values of curiosity, of creativity, of passion, of generosity, of courage are all as equally relevant today as they were, you know, 20 years ago when the business was founded. 
what we needed to build was some capability and skill set in areas mm. that perhaps were not core competencies of the organisation in the early days, but mm. were going to be critical in order for us to achieve our ambition moving forward. And then that just came down to recruiting for mindset as well as right. for skill set, making sure we had the right people in the business from old world T2 and also with a desire for new world T2 sure. coming together yeah. to be able to create that that magic. Um, and what I find for sure with with culture is is a is rallying people behind a common purpose. Mm. You know, what, what is it that gets us up in the morning? Why are we doing what we're doing? And amongst ourselves, how do we create a group of advocates internally that can then drive this also with a bunch of beautiful fans and supporters externally and and that that is something that is is pretty alive and kicking in the t2 culture so key have you been able to retain a lot of the people that you wanted to over these last four or five six years yeah we have i mean and to be fair we've we've retained a lot we've lost some and mm-hmm. we've also brought in very deliberately um, people, some coming from Unilever where there was some rich capability in the Unilever organisation. I thought, well, I'd love a little bit of that at T2 because right. um, that will help the boat go faster. But equally sure. where when you look at Unilever and you looked at T2, you thought, well, actually, this is not core competency for either of these organisations. How do we go and get some amazing talent that sits outside the business and really build, you know, bring mm. the outside in? So a very kind of deliberate um deliberate consideration given to mm. how do you get the right team of people around the table um, with the right skill set but all with the right yeah. heart for what we're trying to achieve so important it's hard to recruit against that i know as a recruiter <laughs> working in the field you know uh, it's uh, one of those intangibles but um you know kind of down that line what do you what do you look for when you're you know making bets in people that you want to invest in I look for mindset and energy. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a really big believer in you sort of have two types of people, one that give energy enormously to the organisation and outside it and mm. a group that can suck the energy out of the room. And, you know, <laughs> right. I, I, the reality is that you can have nine people that give energy and one that sucks it and you, you yeah. can, you know, you're only as strong Eliminate as you Eliminate it all, link. right. Yeah, yeah, you re- yeah. really, yeah. really, really. So that's an area that mm. I pay a lot of attention to. Um, so mindset and energy. And the second one for me is around courage. They have courage mm. and grit and a solution orientation and, and a real ambition for the business and the team and, and not just for themselves. You know, are they really excited about being part of something where we might just leave a legacy and at the same mm. time as an individual you'll be able to thrive within that? What, what kind of questions do you ask during interviews to try to get at those things? Yeah, I, you know, I, I spend a – it's an area I spend quite a bit of time in, you know, yeah. give it high priority and take this really, really seriously because I would rather have no one in the role than the wrong person mm-hmm. in the oh, role, yeah. you know. Um, and at mm-hmm. times I've been told, hey, Nikki, we need you to move faster on this. And my response is always, you know, let's take twice as long on the planning and once the on the person. cut. Yeah. yeah, let's yeah. just get this right. Um, so I spend a lot of time. Oh, of course you understand. You need to understand their capability and their skills. But I spend quite a bit of time trying to understand their values, their mm-hmm. passions, their you know what they like about um, 
you know, what, what, what's happening in their life outside of work. I really want to understand right. the whole being because at the end of the day, you want people to bring their best selves to work and that's not some, you know, microcosm of my work persona. I really want right. people to come into the business and feel like, you know, they can be who they are, they can give their best and they can also be great mums or dads or yeah. partners or uh, you know, team players in their local right. sport. Well Doesn't matter, yeah. but well rounded, yeah. well rounded. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, Nikki Sparshot, you've been very, very generous with your time, but we always have one last question we ask. And you know, that's kind of what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone that's, you know, got his or her eyes on their own corner office and and you know wants to be a CEO themselves? I would say forget the notion of the corner office. You know, don't mm. chase a title or a level or a room in an office. You yeah. know, aspire bigger. I would think about how you want to inspire, how you want to influence, how you want to create impact, and mm. then how you can bring others on the journey. Because when you do that well, then actually you will be successful in your career. Mm. Mm. And I think when you start by chasing some title, the risk is you don't chase the right things that actually set mm. you or the business or your team or the impact that you want up for success. Follow your passion, right? Do what you enjoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Nikki Sparshot, CEO of T2T. Thank you so much for joining and sharing your journey into the corner office. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.